G'day, mate. 40 here. So I got a friend and he's, he doesn't like emotional confrontation. He doesn't like emotionally charged discussions. And he needs to know if it is morally, ethically, Jewishly okay. Is it biblically all right if he tells people that he has Asperger's? Like to try to explain why he's so awkward and uncomfortable around emotions, particularly women's emotions, and around other people's needs. And my, my, my friend, he generally prefers kind of distanced, uh, depersonalized interactions with most people. He has, he has a few intense friendships, but aside from that, he's just scared to death of, in particular, women's emotions, but frankly, anyone's emotions, you know, intense emotional interactions uh, frighten him, anger frightens him, rage fr frightens him, uh, human needs frighten him, just like humanity frightens him. And so he's reaching out to me to find out, is it okay to claim that he's retarded? Can he tell people, oh, I'm sorry, I'm emotionally retarded? Or what's the phrase you're supposed to use? Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm not neurotypical. Or I, I've, I've got Asperger's. I, I'm a bit like Rain Man. And so I, I just don't know how to, you know, interact with, with human emotions and disappointment and very intense feelings. It just makes me feel really awkward. But is that immoral if he doesn't actually have Asperger's? I don't want to step on the Asperger community. I don't want to use and abuse the sacred Asperger Good evening, community. Good welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Happy anniversary. This week marks the seven-month anniversary of the beginning of the war in Ukraine. Something is still going on and isn't talked about quite as much anymore. So the day that war began, which was February 24th, two things were very obvious. The first was that there was no way the Ukrainian army would be able to win a decisive military victory over Russia. And the reason was simple. Russia is too big. Ukraine is too small. The Russian military is many times the size of the Ukrainian military. Plus, of course, it has nuclear weapons. Russia itself is the largest country on planet Earth. It's got a relatively huge economy for the region, and it's got 145 million people who live there. Ukraine has a population of about 40 million. It's the poorest country in Europe. It's got an average annual income that is much lower than Albania's. So just by looking at the most basic Wikipedia-level numbers, it was clear right away that if Ukraine wanted to remain a sovereign country, and of course all of us wanted that for Ukraine, Ukraine was going to have to reach some kind of negotiated settlement with Russia. Pitched battles were not going to do it. Now, that's not a moral judgment. You can root for the Ukrainian military all you want. But it's still a fact, and there's no getting around it. The second thing that was immediately evident about this war was how unusually destructive it was and was going to be. It wasn't just Ukraine that was getting pummeled, though it certainly was. It was the entire Western economy, including our economy. Russian energy fuels Europe. A recession in Germany was certain to lead to a recession here, and in the months since, it has, a bad one. The longer this war goes on, inevitably, the poorer everyone is going to be, with the exception probably of Vladimir Putin. So we are breaking things that are very hard to rebuild. Again, this was very obvious the first day of the war. You weren't allowed to say it at the time. Anyone who did was denounced as a Russian spy. But it was still clearly true, and the Ukrainians certainly understood it. Back in April, according to an account in Foreign Policy magazine, true. negotiators from the governments of Russia and Ukraine met secretly and, quote, appeared to have tentatively agreed on the outlines of a negotiated interim settlement to end the war. The terms of the deal were simple. Russia would withdraw its troops from Ukraine. Ukraine would promise not to join NATO. 
So each side would get the thing that it wants most, simple and effective, and it might have worked. But the Biden administration adamantly opposed this settlement. Biden's advisors didn't just want the Russians to leave Ukraine. That's what they told us they wanted on television. But no, Biden's advisors wanted a total regime change war against Russia, apparently to avenge the election of Donald Trump, which they believed Putin was responsible for. And they were willing to fight to the last Ukrainian to get it. So on April 9th of this year, the White House dispatched its hapless cutout, then British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, to Kiev. According to Ukrainian news media, Johnson communicated two messages to the Zelensky government. Quote, the first is that Putin is a war criminal. He should be pressured, not negotiated with. And the second is that even if Ukraine is ready to sign some agreements on guarantees with Putin, the West is not. In other words, who cares what the Ukrainians want? America and the UK demand total war with Russia, regime change war with Russia. And of course, the Ukrainians caught in the middle had no choice but to concede. So days later, the peace negotiations fell apart. This was virtually unreported at the time, but it was the turning point in the war in Ukraine. This was the moment where the goal changed from restoring Ukraine to what it was before the invasion, and that seems reasonable to everyone in the West, to something very different, to a war designed to topple Vladimir Putin, just like we toppled Saddam Hussein, and then hoping for the best afterward. That is clearly insane and dangerous. But that's where we are. And from that point on, everything changed. And that is how we got to where we are today, which is the closest we have ever been to nuclear conflict in history. This week, President Zelensky of Ukraine gave an interview to the left-wing newspaper, The Guardian. And in it, he casually called for the United States to nuke Vladimir Putin. Quote, the other nuclear states need to say very firmly that as soon as Russia even thinks of carrying out nuclear strikes on foreign territory, in this case, the territory of Ukraine, there will be swift retaliatory nuclear strikes to destroy the nuclear launch sites in Russia. Parse that. And we're quoting, as soon as Russia even thinks of carrying out nuclear strikes, meaning before Russia actually launches missiles, the U.S. needs to launch nuclear weapons against Russia. In other words, we need to launch nuclear weapons now. Why now? And how do we know that's what Zelensky meant? Because Zelensky was responding to this warning from the Russian government on Wednesday. Watch. I want to remind you that our country also has various means of destruction and for separate components and more modern than those of NATO countries. And when the territorial integrity of our country is threatened to protect Russia and our people, we will certainly use all means at our disposal. It's not a bluff. It's not a bluff, says Putin, who we are told is insane. So we probably should take it seriously. He is, after all, running a country with the largest nuclear arsenal on the planet. And he's talking about using nuclear weapons if the West continues to threaten Russia's territorial integrity. It's a conditional warning. And of course, threatening Russia's territorial integrity was never part of the deal, right? You remember this. It's why you wore a Ukrainian lapel pin or put a Ukrainian flag in front of your house. Ukraine was invaded. The point was to kick the Russians out. That seems reasonable by any standard of fairness and decency. But that's not what the Biden administration is pushing for. They're pushing for toppling the government of Russia and once again hoping that everything will be fine after, that someone better will somehow take over. He's bad. Let's kill him. Heard that story before? So in response to what Putin just said, Ukraine's government called for an immediate nuclear attack on Russia, an attack that would, without question, 
result in the immediate destruction of New York, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, the deaths of tens of millions of Americans. That's what he just said. Sane people do not talk this way, ever. If there was a moment for the Biden administration to shut this whole thing down and force a negotiated peace, which they could do in an instant, that moment is right now, before huge numbers of people die. But that's not what the Biden administration is doing. They're moving in the other direction at high speed and doing all they can to bring the West to the brink of destruction. At the UN yesterday, Joe Biden accused Russia, not Ukraine, of making overt nuclear threats. Watch. This war is about extinguishing Ukraine's right to exist as a state, plain and simple, and Ukraine's right to exist as a people. Whoever you are, wherever you live, whatever you believe, that should not, that should make your blood run cold. President Putin has made overt nuclear threats against Europe and a reckless disregard for the responsibilities of the non-proliferation regime. We will stand in solidarity with Ukraine. We will stand in solidarity against Russia's aggression, period. If you like. Okay, Putin is bad. Fine, agreed. But Putin is making nuclear threats. Whatever the reason he is making them, the fact he is making them, and the Ukrainians, of course, are also making explicit nuclear threats, is enough for any responsible person to say, now we stop, especially if that person is the leader of the United States, the country which is funding this war and that could end this war tonight by calling Ukraine to the table. Russian troops leave. Ukraine promises not to join NATO. Everything is as it was in January of this year, and everything's fine. We don't have to worry about New York getting nuked. But that's not what they want. So Joe Biden didn't say a word about America's responsibility here. Again, we are funding this war. We could end it. They're choosing not to. He didn't say a word about that at the United Nations, of course, because they want war. And neither did Secretary of State Tony Blinken. Watch. The President Putin picked this week, as most of the world gathers at the United Nations, to add fuel to the fire that he started, shows his utter contempt for the UN Charter, for the General Assembly, and for this council. The very international order that we have gathered here to uphold is being shredded before our eyes. We cannot, we will not allow President Putin to get away with it. Every council member should send a clear message that these reckless nuclear threats must stop immediately. Okay, so Tony Blink, the Secretary Terry of State is a, is a buffoon, a failed rock musician, reading some paper, posturing like a cable news segment, how Putin is bad yet. Great, got it. But sitting behind him in the shot you just saw is someone who is not a buffoon at all, and that would be Toria Newland, one of the people responsible for the disaster in Iraq. Now, in a functioning country, anyone who had a hand in the 20-year tragedy of Iraq, in which America's prestige was gravely degraded, in which thousands of Americans died, in which we got much poorer for no good reason, anyone who was involved in that, including the lie that got us into it, would be disqualified from participating in American foreign policy forever. But Tory Newland just ascended, ascended, ascended until she brings us to the brink of nuclear war with Russia. So Tony Blinken is telling the United Nations and the rest of us that it's okay for Ukraine to threaten nuclear war on behalf of the United States. <laughs> and the rest of the world looks on with their jaws open, including China, of all places. Here's China's foreign ministry spokesperson yesterday. Watch. 
We call on all parties to achieve a ceasefire and stop the war through dialogue and negotiation and to find a solution that takes into account the legitimate security concerns of all parties as soon as possible. We also hope the international community will create the conditions and space for this. We call on all parties to achieve a ceasefire, like the one they nearly had in April before the Biden administration blew it up because they want regime change in Russia. Now, that's coming from China, which has a human rights record that you know, makes Russia seem like Sweden. And, of course, China's benefited almost as much from this war as Putin has and Raytheon and Lockheed has. But even the Chinese are not crazy enough to want nuclear Armageddon. In the end, all they want to do is do business and dominate through business. They don't want their customers to blow themselves up, and they understand they're coming incredibly close. Only Tony Blinken and lunatics like Tori Newland really want that. And they are fully behind Ukraine's president as he declares that his goal is not ending the war and getting his country back, which is a fine and admirable goal that most Americans support. No, his goal is toppling Vladimir Putin and turning Russia into another failed state. Oh, good plan. Here he is. A crime has been committed against Ukraine, and we demand just punishment. The crime was committed against our state borders. The crime was committed against the values that make you and me a community of the United Nations. And Ukraine demands punishment for trying to steal our territory. This is the first item of our peace formula. Comprehensive item. Punishment. So a corrupt... Eastern European authoritarian leader in a T-shirt is lecturing us about the community of nations and telling us this is really about the punishment the Ukraine demands. It's not about self-defense or getting their territory back. It's about regime change. Specifically, they're demanding a nuclear strike from us. How do we get involved in this anyway? But almost nobody in Washington is standing back to ask that question. They're full speed ahead on this. This is insane. But they're all for it. Adam Kinzinger just tweeted this, quote, By the way, any target within Russia that contributes to the war is fair game by law of armed conflict. There's no escalation possible by a country fighting for survival. Anyone claiming Ukraine is escalating should stop. Okay. Anyone saying things that stupid in public should immediately resign from public office and be silent until wisdom comes, please. Then over in the Senate, Lindsey Graham and Richard Blumenthal or an agreement on just that same point. They've announced that Russia is a state sponsor of terrorism. Okay. Russia should be declared a state sponsor of terrorism because the events of these past days and weeks have shown the need more powerfully than ever that Russia should be designated a state sponsor of terrorism. I think bipartisanship is strong when it comes to supporting Ukraine over Russia. I want to thank the administration for doing more. We have our differences about the next step, but Speaker Pelosi's in our camp. She has said, from her point of view, Russia has earned the designation in U.S. law of being a state sponsor of terrorism. The fact that Lindsey Graham can go on television, as he so often does, and claim to be conservative and someone who cares about the United States, it's beyond. So this is part of the endless posturing about how Russia is bad. And sure, Russia's bad. Fine, Russia's bad. But it's the words, as always, that matter. They're telling you that Russia is now a state sponsor of terror. Why are they saying that? And you're probably nodding. Yeah, it seems like a bad place with a bad leader. Fine. 
but state sponsor of terror? It's important for them to define Russia very specifically as that. Why? Because what do we do with terror states? We topple their governments. We go on the offensive. We take the fight to them. And that's the position of Washington on a bipartisan level. And it's particularly the position of people who believe falsely, speaking of election-related conspiracy theories, that Vladimir Putin stole the 2016 election. And no one believes that lunacy more fervently than the lady who lost. Here she is. They're getting the weapons they need to defend themselves, and they're now on offense. And I think we have to keep supporting them, helping them. They were attacked by an unprovoked uh, act of war, and they've held out and they've done better than anybody could have predicted. And Zelensky has been a true wartime leader. I'm so impressed with him. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the United States should stand with them. So if you're one of the millions of good-hearted Republicans who, when this broke out in February, thought, well, this is awful. You shouldn't invade a sovereign country. And of course, we agreed with that. We should stand with Ukraine. You may feel a little fooled at this point because what you're watching is classic mission creep. We arrive for one purpose and we extend the stay for an entirely different purpose that you didn't sign up for and that will absolutely hurt the United States long term. So when Hillary Clinton says we're going to stand with Zelensky as he goes on the offensive, that does not mean expelling Russian troops from his country, which everyone would agree with. That means toppling Vladimir Putin and creating a black hole in the center of Eastern Europe, the place where Asia meets Europe, in a country with some of the biggest energy reserves on the planet and the largest nuclear arsenal. Ooh, how's that going to work out? Well, let's listen to the Pentagon spokesman. They're going on television to explain. What we need to do is instead we just need to reverse it. We say, uh-uh, all in. And we haven't done that. For example, we haven't given the, the Ukrainian systems like the Atakums missile, mm-hmm. which can reach all of Crimea. It's a 200-mile range, 500-pound warhead, 300, 300 bombs to it. It really can put the Russians at threat. But we haven't done that. And I think we should put him at threat. Until he really believes that we're seriously going after him, he's going to continue to make these threats. So again, anybody who had a hand in, say, like the last five wars that diminished American power, killed Americans, made us poorer, hurt the United States long term in very real ways. Anyone who participated in any of that should probably bow out of the conversation about the latest war for the same reason that you wouldn't say take financial advice from someone who had gone bankrupt or go to marriage counseling with someone who's been divorced three times because they've demonstrably failed in their area of so-called expertise. And that would include virtually everyone you hear talking about this stuff. He's going to continue making these threats, meaning Putin. So those are apparently the only threats that we object to. If Ukraine wants us to launch a preemptive nuclear strike on their behalf, that's totally fine. This is complete craziness. This is a, quote, strategy that could very easily bring the total destruction of the West, and soon. And maybe that's the point. Colonel Doug McGregor, virtually alone among American military analysts, understood the potential consequences of this war the very first day, the day it started. He was attacked for that. We're honored to have him join us tonight. Doug McGregor, thanks so much for coming on. If Zelensky is demanding that we preemptively nuke Russia, you would expect someone in Washington to say, whoa, 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 that's crazy talk. But I don't hear anyone saying that. Well, there are a couple of things at work. First of all, almost from the very first moment that the Russians moved into eastern Ukraine, uh, a succession of retired generals and political hacks in Washington and London and elsewhere have been declaring imminent victory for Ukraine. 
Seven months later, and the Ukrainian army has bled white. Tens of thousands of Ukrainian troops have been killed or wounded. Ukraine is really on the ropes and trying to create the illusion that that's not the case. At the same time, Vladimir Putin has finally concluded that he can't negotiate with Kiev, that the real problem is, of course, Washington, and that Washington will not negotiate with him. So he's opted for partial mobilization, bringing in additional forces, ostensibly for the purpose of ending this thing. And at the same time, he's very aware, as any of us are who are in the defense community in Washington, that there's been a lot of loose talk for several months about the viability of waging a limited nuclear war against Russia using the so-called tactical nuclear weapon. And this sort of thing is very frightening to the Russians. They've made it very clear that their use of nuclear weapons is limited to retaliatory strikes in the event that we or someone else strikes them. So they just wanted to reaffirm clearly that they will respond if we use a nuclear weapon. I, I just, in one sentence, tell me, you've been in Washington and in the, in the U.S. Army for all your life. People didn't used to talk like this. Let's just throw nukes at a country. I mean, wh when did this start? I think we've always had a certain number of people who believed in the viability of a limited nuclear war, but normally they were beaten back into, uh, into the background and regarded as, quite frankly, uh, crazy. But they are in ascendance, yeah. and they have gained a lot of credibility. It's, it's, it's shocking to people who don't pay attention to this stuff every day. It really is the most reckless thing I can imagine. Colonel Doug McGregor, thank you so much Absolutely. for coming on today. Oh. Where's my sound? Okay, mate, 40 here. So it's really hard not to admire Zelensky and the, the gutsy job he's done leading his country through this difficult time. I don't understand anyone whose emotions are 100% on the side of Ukraine. And also disagree with Tucker, this notion that once we designate a country a terrorist uh, supporter, that then that means we invade them. Well, we designated North Korea a supporter of terrorism. We've never invaded North Korea. We've done the same for Iran. We've never invaded Iran in the last uh, 50 years. All right, we, we've done the same for Syria. We've had minimal armed intervention in Syria. So I understand Tucker's talking to a 100 IQ audience. He needs to overstate his case to make it particularly dramatic. I wanted to bring up those, those few uh, quibbles. So... Who has the strongest voice on the alt-right? Apparently, people can draw a pretty good gauge on your level of strength based on your voice. I feel like I can very quickly assess somebody's level of recovery from addiction. So I'm at a lot of 12-step phone meetings, 12-step in-person meetings, and I feel like I can get a very quick sense of where someone's at with their recovery by their voice. And I feel like in general, I can get a pretty good read on people based on the quality of their voice. So given that people can pretty accurately read you based on the quality of your voice, is there a way that you can bulk up your voice so that you kind of fool those evolutionary cues to sound more powerful, more strong than you really are? And I was watching this video by Roger Love, celebrity voice coach, and he's giving these tips on how to bulk up your voice. So not just speak with the head voice, which is up here. So I resonate from the very top of my throat. That's where I'm resonating from. It takes more energy 
than the way I used to speak. And this is from my voice lessons about uh, three years ago. It takes a lot more energy to speak from up here. But on the other side, I never get a sore voice or a sore vocal cords, throat problems, anything like that. So I have to expend more energy to speak this way to resonate from the very top of the back of my throat. But the I, I like the results. I don't have nearly the monotone that I used to have, say, five years ago. Now, Roger Love talks about the head voice versus the chest voice. And I, I'm not really up to all the details here. But as I understand it, the the head voice is up here like this, and then the chest voice is like this. So this is chest voice. It's thicker. And then this is head voice alone. Head voice is up here, and then this is chest voice. So it's not just coming from my head, but it's from my head and chest. Let's see if I understand what uh, Roger Love is trying to and teach you. And have people perceive them exactly they want, the way they want to be perceived. You want to know how to outsmart these evolutionary cues that the scientific study talked about? Okay, first, make sure you have sufficient amounts of chest voice. Remember, those are the deep, thick, and rich sounds down low, filled with plenty of edge and vocal cord vibration. So, as I understand it, head voice is right, ready, really, so it's a little thinner. Right, ready, really, I go about as high as I can go. And then chest voice, right, ready, really. Do you, do you hear a difference in the thickness? Not sure what that feels like? Say this. Ah. Ah. Do you feel that buzz in the, ah. in the back part of your throat? Ah. Ah. Emphasize that ah. feeling. Look for that feeling right. and sound. Ready. When you're really. trying to achieve right. the thickness in the lower part Thick. of your chest voice. Second. Okay. So who's got the thickest voice in the, the dissident right? right? And then there are other things you can do to sound stronger. You want to have a smooth voice. right? The more commas that you put into your elocution, the weaker you sound. The more pauses you have, the weaker you sound. The more filler words you have, the weaker you sound. So ideally, to have a professional, impressive, strong-sounding voice, you just take off on a nice, smooth trajectory with uh, quite a bit of ascending the staircase. And then occasionally, for a little bit of rhythm, you start walking down the staircase, particularly if you want to induce a feeling of disappointment. To convey strength with your voice, connect more words together without frequent pauses, like this. There's strength that comes from how fluid, even, and thick those connected words are as they ride out on a solid stream of air. Right. That does sound much more impressive than someone who's just constantly pausing. When you just put commas in all over the place, stopping in between words where they don't need a comma, you sound weak. Third. Cut the fillers. I normally don't stress. Right, so no need for ums and ahs. The more you do of that, then the weaker you sound. So it seems to me, given those three tips for the most impressive, strongest sounding voice, it seems to me that uh, Richard Spencer wins. He's not just the most musical, not just the, the most melodic, 
not just the most hypnotic to listen to, but also conveys more strength than any other distant right intellectual of which I'm aware. And so Nick Fuentes is also very smooth. Nick Fuentes doesn't use a lot of filler words. Nick Fuentes has a hypnotic quality to the way he speaks. But Nick Fuentes is speaking to an average IQ audience of about 100, while Richard Spencer is speaking to an average IQ audience of 120. And it's much more challenging. It's much more difficult to discuss complicated, nuanced issues at a higher IQ level than what a Nick Fuentes or Tucker Carlson does. Dress content. Okay, let's hear a little bit of Richard Spencer. Um, I, I think there's just a larger you know, world there where they can find German-speaking content and French-speaking content. Um, and then I've also noticed a total absence of Russian listeners. And then we'll, and then we'll, we'll have like more presumably expats living in Asia um, listening than I will people in Russia. I don't know. It's just, it's um, pretty interesting, just demographics. But people of Northern Europe are almost always overrepresented. Probably has something to do with the kind of smaller countries and then also um, English speaking. Um, it seems like every Scandinavian I've ever met has been um, an excellent English speaker. And at one point, I remember when I was studying German, actually, many years ago, um, I learned that Scandinavians, they have like a different, their te American television shows have subtitles but aren't dubbed. And in Germany, American like movies get dubbed into German. And so they're basically kind of like learning English constantly when they're kids, like when they're watching a Disney movie or whatever, they're, they're hearing it in English and then they're seeing the, um, you know, Swedish subtitles or something. And so it's, it's like a teaching tool. So, Richard's obviously speaking off the cuff. I, I don't think he has a long list of, of notes that he, he's working off of, so it's challenging to do it without the filler, but uh, overall, he does an impressive job. But that, that might have changed a bit over the years, but that's at least what I've heard. But anyway, um, I, I know this is real Euro hours, um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, Ron DeSantis stunt. Um, I was just taking care of my kids for the last four or five days. So I've kind of been off social media to a large degree and I haven't really commented on it, but I do think the whole thing is pretty fascinating. So I did want to talk about that, but we can take the conversation wherever, um, we want to go. And there's just some kind of crazy things that were occurring this weekend as well with a Trump rally in Ohio and stuff like that. So I guess I want to make this an American, or at least my impulse is to make it an American centric real Euro hours. But of course you guys can change the conversation as you will. Um, I found the, the DeSantis stunt, I, I found it pretty stupid and grotesque. And I found like the response that I saw from conservatives to be equally stupid. And I actually think it's going to be a long-term uh, problem, if not a disaster. And it might actually become a disaster. So this morning I was, uh, I was just editing this video to get up for a subscriber video and all that kind of stuff. But I, I was doing some research and I saw the... Um... So it just seems to me that Richard Spencer finds any effective real world technique that helps conservatives make, make a difference in the country. He just finds it disappointing and low IQ and... Uh, it's, hard. it's hard to look at what Ron DeSantis has done and, and not see that as an effective way to play up the issue of illegal immigration. 
I mean, Ron DeSantis is a highly effective politician. But Richard is fun to listen to because he always has critiques of other people on the right and how they just don't get it. And really, he's the only one who gets it. These Venezuelan immigrants came originally from San, the San Antonio area. Now, first off, just in case you have no idea what I'm talking about, I, I presume you have heard that there, there was this shipment by plane of migrants to Martha's Vineyard. I think it happened last Friday. And um, they've been processed and so on. And this was really played up. I mean, it was probably tightly coordinated with Tucker Carlson and Fox News and other social media people. So you have all of As opposed to the left, who never coordinate what they do with their media. This, um, you know, accusations of hypocrisy, I guess is what it is, of sending, my, you know, sending diversity and migrants to Martha's Vineyard. And, um, oh my gosh, look at how hypocritical they are. Although I don't, I don't think the thing makes sense at all. Um, so there's, there have been a lot of shipments of migrants from... I think it makes sense. All right, sanctuary cities, all right, then... If you want to declare that you have a sanctuary city, you support sanctuary cities, that no no person is illegal, then you should be the ones taking care of illegal aliens. I mean, you have to be really high IQ, a la Richard Spencer, to think that what Ron DeSantis did here doesn't make sense. Mainly Texas, where Greg Abbott, the governor, is is basically taking a lot of people um, who have been processed to some degree and sending them to big cities. I mean, he's saying they're sending them to blue states, but they're sending them to these big cities that are governed by Democrats where there are millions of immigrants, illegal and otherwise, like Chicago, New York City, Los Angeles, et cetera. And um, this has been, there has been some pushback um, from even, I, I've noticed it's, it's been brought up even in press conferences uh, for the Biden administration where they're saying, oh, this is cruel, you're um, just moving people around and so on. And, and I guess you The Biden administration is moving people around Every, every administration has been moving people around for the last 50 years talking of illegal aliens. So why is this particular moving people around? Why is that heinous? Well, when the Biden administration moves people around, that's a good thing. Can't fairly say, well, you know, we're in Texas. We happen to be. And I suppose to answer my own question, the most obvious answer is, well, when the Biden administration does it, they are moving people to where there are resources to take care of them. But these resources to take care of them are so incredibly overstretched. Does that really hold up? I'm skeptical of that. I mean, does this country really have adequate resources to take care of well over a million illegal aliens pouring into this country? Are they just taken care of? It really? Is that, is that really what's going on? I'm skeptical. On the border, and you don't know what we're going through. You don't know how difficult this is where there are millions. Um, there's actually more border crossings than ever before. I think there was a... Um, article I also read that was um, over, what was the, it was in the New York Times, I forget the exact stat, but it's over a million a month or a year, something like that. Um, now, that might be a bit deceptive um, because there are far more border agents now. And the way that illegal immigration in the United States is measured is through apprehensions, because that's kind of the only way when you can get a number. The point is the Trump administration crushed the illegal immigration problem, right? America's had an illegal immigration problem for over 100 years, the first person to finally crush it is Donald J. Trump. We had it crushed in 2020 with the Remain in Mexico policy and other policies and border walls that, that Trump was carrying out. And then the Biden administration decided to do away with the policies that were working. So effectively, the Biden administration chose to undo the progress we made against illegal immigration and essentially throw the gates open so that America would become flooded once again with illegal immigrants. How does anyone 
consider this in America's best interest. You had a policy that was working, stopped illegal immigration. Now you undo those policies that stopped illegal immigration. You throw the floodgates open. And who on earth thinks that America is better off getting flooded by illegal immigrants as opposed to having the option to choose whether to take any immigrants at all? Or if we're going to take immigrants to choose the immigrants we bring in, perhaps on the basis of valuable skills, valuable resources that they might have to meet particular needs that the country has. I I'm crazy. I think that American policy should be run on the basis of what is best for Americans when it comes to immigration. What is best for Americans? I think, generally speaking, we need an immigration halt, an immigration freeze, though I am open to individuals with very specific and highly needed skills or resources I, I'm happy to bring in people who are willing to invest, you know, tens of millions of dollars in America, right? I'm happy for them to immigrate here. I'm happy to bring in people who have incredibly valuable skills that this country badly needs. But that's about it from my perspective. Uh, I mean, they are illegal immigrants after all. And, uh, you know, the, the whole point of what they're doing is to work in a secret manner. Um, I, I generally don't believe that immigration, like, illegal immigration across the Mexican border is higher than it was 20 years ago. And I do think that I, I... It's the point is, it's dramatically higher compared to what it was two years ago. Two years ago, we stopped the problem. Once Biden came in, he took away the policies that stopped the problem and the problem has expanded and expanded. That's the point. It seems like such an obvious point. I, I'm not sure why Richard doesn't address it. I don't it. doubt that it's high and that it's out of control. I don't doubt that at all. But um, I'm just saying this purely anecdotally, but we didn't have a Department of Homeland Security um, uh, in the, the turn of the 21st century. I guess that came in like 2002 or 2003. It was post 9-11. We had far fewer border agents. And um, so what I have heard from people, I mean, I grew up in Texas. I remember hearing from my mother and sister who went to some like flea market kind of thing in Mexico where you could, you know, create amazing prices on, uh, you know, antiques and all this kind of stuff. And um, they were just describing it as, as almost comically out of control, where they were sitting in their hotel in Mexico and just watching people cross the border. Perhaps they were, perhaps they were on the border, like staying at, uh, you know, a Hilton or whatever. Would you like any rando just walking into your home? Would you like any rando walking into your daughter's home? Would you want, you know, any rando just walking into your community, given that they are in the country illegally? Like no sane person wants that. It's not so difficult. We had policies that stopped this problem. We withdrew those policies. Now this problem is escalating. <laughs> Near the Mexican border and just watching dozens of people cross at will. I do think it was actually worse 20 years ago, but I don't doubt that it's out of control now. And uh, and obviously it seems worse now because we have more information. Um, but anyway, I, I get it. it. It is a huge problem. Um, they're claiming this is a Biden issue. But again, that also is rather not exactly accurate. Um, Biden has you know, to the chagrin of most of the liberals maintain uh, the Trump era policy. Now, they've they've tried to reverse things of like separating children from their parents. And so they reversed the things that worked. All right. That's why we have this overwhelming problem. And we didn't have it two years ago. It's such a simple, obvious point. I don't know why Richard doesn't address the more draconian things, but they haven't really. Yeah, the draconian things, meaning the things that worked. Gone towards open borders. I mean, it's, a, it's an out of control situation. And uh, I'm forgetting the. Ex you will judge them by their fruits. Essentially, the Biden administration did go for open borders. We have a huge problem now. 
that we didn't have two years ago because of the deliberate policies of the Biden administration to stop carrying out the policies that crushed this problem back in 2020. It's so simple, but I guess that's just too low IQ and uh, not exciting enough of a perspective. So I enjoy listening to Richard. He's incredibly dramatic. He's got that melodic voice. He, he speaks as though he's singing a musical on stage. He's, he's fun to listen to. He's always got these contrary hot takes. But the danger of putting a priority on drama over everything else is that you are frequently going to be wrong. And if you put a higher priority on being interesting than on being right, if you put a higher priority on creating emotions and a buzz rather than contributing to dealing with problems, then that's the problem, right? And, and Richard so loves the dramatic, it takes away from his ability to be clear and correct. Exact. Uh, I'm forgetting the exact piece of regulation that they maintain, but they effectively, there's a name for it. It's like section seven or something like that. Anyway, um, I'll have to go look into it. I'm sure it can get lost in the details, but the overall picture is that they have maintained that. Um, Kamala Harris traveled to Mexico and told people not to come, the borders closed. So we're just basically in the status quo, but of course, conservatives, and, and we're also in a very different environment than we were in COVID, where not only do you have, you know, the pandemic, but you just had this major slowdown shut down for a, you know, for a long time, but certainly a massive slowdown in terms of the economic incentives to migrate. America can close its borders if it wants to, if its leaders make that a priority, just like Christ denial could be illegal in this country if Christian nationalists took over and decided to make it illegal. Now, as a convert to Judaism, I don't want Christ denial to be illegal, but right now the, the worst denials that you can commit are what? Holocaust denial, uh, COVID denial, COVID vaccine effectiveness denial and election integrity denial, right? These are the worst things because these are the worst things to our ruling elite who tend to overwhelmingly be on the left. If we had a different ruling elite, if conservatives and Christian nationalists implemented more stunts like uh, Ron DeSantis did, if they learned to play the game effectively so that they take power, then other denials would become the number one problem. Right. So, you know, voter fraud allegations, you know, that's a horrible thing. You get kicked off of social media if you make those allegations. Well, uh, imagine a different society, say, run by Christian nationalists, where that would not be that would not be the problem. All right. Just just imagine that there are other values that ruled in this society. Right. Instead of COVID denial or election denial, it was Christ denial that was the number one problem in this country. Like, I remember reading this professor say, imagine that secular, skeptical, or left-wing faculty and students were confronted by a religious harassment code that prohibited denigration of Christianity. I mean, imagine a United States body of law and law enforcement that prohibited denigration of Christianity. Right. One of the worst things you can do, practically speaking, is to be racist or sexist or homophobic or bigoted, prejudiced in any way. Well, imagine if the greatest sins you could commit were to in any way denigrate Christianity or Christ or any of the traditional values such as the, the nuclear family, heterosexual marriage. Maybe that could be the number one denial 
agenda for American law enforcement. Just imagine the different space that we would live in. And I would not want that sort of space. All right. Obviously, I'm Jewish, but it's hard for me to imagine that every organism doesn't want to try to create the most conducive environment to its own flourishing. Why should Christian nationalists be exempt from this universal biological principle from frogs to mosquitoes? to people, we all try to create an environment that is most conducive to our flourishing, right? This is the 40 International Center for Human Flourishing. I understand the desire to flourish. Why would Christians not want to flourish too? Why would not Christians want this whole country, not just a classroom or a campus? Why would Christians not want this whole country to be a space where they could be protected against feeling intimidated or offended, or even by their own subjective experience, Victims of a hostile environment. Imagine loyalty oaths to Christ or to Christianity or to the United States of America, where anyone who did not partake of these oaths suffered severe consequences, right? Where we reminded people about the tens of millions of people who were murdered by communism, right? Just imagine that free minds were prohibited from creating a hostile environment for Christians or for heterosexuals or for white people. What if people were offend, barred from offending you know, minority of individuals who are descended from Korean or Vietnam or Iraq war or Afghan war veterans? Right? And imagine that for every case that, that became public, there were thousands of cases in which the offenders and victimizers desperate to preserve their status, their job, or to get a degree or move ahead in life, accepted some kind of confidential plea bargain that may include a semester, a whole year's worth of re-education in religious sensitivity, in Christian sensitivity, in American sensitivity, in patriotic sensitivity, in, in seminars run by, say, the Evangelical Center or the Patriot Center or the Office of Religious and Patriotic Compliance. That could happen, right, if Christian nationalists replaced our current elites. So there were less construction, restaurants were closed down, etc. Um, but, you know, it is an issue. It's a real issue, but it's also this kind of theatrical issue. So Ron DeSantis saw what Greg Abbott was doing um, in terms of moving migrants to big cities. And uh, he also saw the pushback that it got, that the liberals were freaking out and seemingly being racist in a way because they're saying you know what are you doing this is extremely cruel and you can counter well what you told us that you know uh people don't have borders or you know diversity is our strength so why are you complaining and so it becomes this kind of passive aggressive maneuver and um you know ron DeSantis just one-upped everyone by not sending them to say chicago or boston but i feel sometimes that richard finds that, that winning is simply not interesting enough it's not uh, dramatic enough it, it doesn't have as many layers of nuance as he would like. And so, therefore, he finds it contemptible. Sending them to Martha's Vineyard, which is this beautiful and, uh, as you've heard, you know, extremely <laughs> uh, luxurious and uh, wealth, wealthy uh, island uh, in Massachusetts. Uh, I've actually been there many, many years ago. This when I was actually a child. But, yeah, an awesome place to live. And it is kind of an image of an older America. I was actually up in Boston just a couple of weeks ago and... Um, because I got shipped on a plane by Ron DeSantis. No, just kidding. Um, I, I was just visiting Matt and a mutual friend. And um, yeah, the, the Massachusetts is, is gorgeous. And you do. So why should certain places be exempt from the perils and the challenges of handling illegal immigrants? 
why should handling illegal immigrants be something that is just primarily left to red states? Why, why should this primarily be a Republican problem? Why should not the liberal elites have to deal with the consequences of their own policies? When you're around Concord and other places, Concord is, is much more of like a working class place. But nevertheless, it, it just, yeah, there's a really nostalgic kind of older America that is still visible. And um, so basically they shipped them to Martha, Martha's Vineyard. Now also, Barack Obama has this you know gigantic estate in Martha's Vineyard. I'm sure there are other celebrities or just extremely wealthy people. I'm not quite convinced that it's entirely liberal. I mean, granted, it's Massachusetts. Um, and there is a- Of course, it's not entirely liberal. But it's fair to say that Martha's Vineyard is liberal if more than 70% of the people on Martha's Vineyard are liberal. And, and there's no doubt that that's true. Strong tendency for wealthy people to adopt the Democratic Party. Now, there wasn't one, um, say, 20 or 30 years ago. And, uh, but I uh, imagine you could find quite a few Republicans in <laughs> Martha's Vineyard. But putting that aside, it just becomes this really kind of strange... Uh, political stunt where they... Why should Martha's Vineyard be immune from the challenge of dealing with illegal immigrants? Why should Manhattan be immune? Why should Democratic strongholds be immune from these problems? Why should only those cities, communities, counties that are not as affluent have to foot the bill and have to deal with the downsides of having illegal immigrants. I, I don't get why Martha's Vineyard should be illegal, should be exempt from this kind of problem. Like, why, why should I have to deal with illegal immigrants, but people who live on Martha's Vineyard get to be exempt from this challenge? Passively, aggressively force the migrants to be in Martha's Vineyard. And then it's a, it's a heads I win, tails you lose situation. So, and I saw some of these uh, opening uh monologues from tucker carlson where that i I just found on youtube because they're they're put up there i saw some clips on twitter as well and it's it's kind of this weird thing of like what exactly do you expect them to do and so he he did one monologue on on friday i believe where he was like oh well look finally at last this you know 89 percent white martha's vineyard will be diversified you know they should have a take or take parade but oh no there's nothing going on there's there's just crickets he actually showed a live image of martha's Vineyard, like the center of martha's vineyard and they played crickets as an audio track over it. But what, what are you, like, what are you talking about? Like this, this was a political stunt created by a governor. And the- why should Martha's Vineyard be exempt from dealing with this problems of illegal immigrants? Why should certain communities not have to deal with illegal immigrants? Why should Martha's Vineyard be illegal immigrant free? All right. So does Martha Vineyard, could they decide to be free of Jews and you'd be okay with that? Why is it that a certain sector of humanity is just verboten to enter the sacred space of Martha's Vineyard? What gives the holiness and the power to Martha's Vineyard to be exempt from the problems that bedevil the rest of us? I just don't get why I have to put out with illegal immigrants and you have to put out with illegal immigrants. But people who live on Martha's Vineyard, they don't have to be soiled by these kind of tawdry problems. Like, how are they so holy that they get to be exempt? The point of it was that no one was notified. These people were promised. Well, we learned later they're promised jobs, they're promised uh, food and shelter, et cetera. And they're put on a plane. Oh, so if you just shift 100,000 more illegal immigrants into Texas and you give a week's notice that therefore that's okay. 
right? All those counties, all those cities in America right now who are struggling with illegal immigrants, they're going to be just fine if you just give them notice that there's another caravan of illegals coming up through Mexico. And now that they've got two weeks notice, now that they've got a month's notice, they're going to be fine. I remember these these Jewish groups, such as the Simon Wiesenthal Center, were just defecating all over Europe for Europe's struggles, assimilating two million illegal immigrants who were, many of them were given legal status coming up from Syria and, and the Middle East. And the Wiesenthal Center and other Jewish groups like it were just saying, wow, look at Europe, look how backward and bigoted it is, look how you know inept it is assimilating 2 million illegals. It's not easy to assimilate 2 million illegals from a totally different culture, totally different religion, right? A totally different mindset, right? I'd love to see Israel try to assimilate that, that number of people who are hostile to it. Flown up there clandestinely. So what do you, what do you how could they possibly throw a ticker tape parade to embrace diversity in this situation? It's just total nonsense. And then you have, again, this heads I win, tails you lose attitude with Martha Vineyard people. So basically, the people there said, and they're obviously being accurate. Maybe they're, I don't know. I mean, I get the hypocrisy thing, but they're just being accurate. This is a super wealthy elite town. There is no, like, homeless, (laughs) there's no homeless shelter here. There's no. Oh, so homeless shelters. If you have homeless shelters, then just uh, ship the, the homeless and the illegals to places with homeless shelters. Because if a county's got a homeless shelter, then it's just totally dealing with the problem. Look, I live in Los Angeles. We've got homeless shelters here, and the homeless problem is out of control. Right. And we're spending billions of dollars and the problem just gets worse and worse and worse because the more you subsidize homelessness, the more you get of it. The more you subsidize antisocial behavior, the more you get of it, the more you make it easy to enter the United States as in illegal. And the more stuff and gives that you give to illegals, the more illegals who come here. It's not that complicated. Like, I guess they could maybe work in a restaurant busing tables or something, but this is just not the place for them. Oh, so what is the place, right? What is the place to deal with millions of criminals? What is the place? Who should be given this task? Like what level of infrastructure uh, makes you worthy of this tremendous gift? There's no processing center here. That would be in Boston. Or oh, so if we just had a processing center, then then we get the gift of illegal aliens. Right? There are a lot of processing centers in the United States. And how's that working out? How's that working out for those communities? How's that working out for the people who have to deal with the filth and the crime and the dysfunction and the destruction of their schools and... The, the growing tides of just bad behavior and unkempt, icky, disease-ridden people, you know, flowing into their community. What, you think a, a processing center is just going to deal with that? that? That takes care of the problem? We, we've got some processing centers here in Texas, and therefore Texas is going to be A-OK? Something. So there's, you know... You can, there's nothing for them to do. And then the, the, the conservatives would be like, well, you should just take them into your homes. Just, you know, uh, uh, set up a new room for them. No, they should be the problem of somebody else, right? Liberals should not have to deal with these problems. Yes, Sweden has over 500 bombings a year. Very impressive 
assimilation there by Muslim immigrants into Sweden. Uh, I see that as a great model for what I want for the United States. Have them marry your daughter or whatever. I mean, it's just all this really extreme, unreasonable, passive-aggressive nonsense. And the fact is, those people, the, the people in Martha's Vineyard dealt with um, the situation in a reasonable manner. They were... Yeah, they called out the military and they got rid of the people within 24 hours. God, if only we could do that in Los Angeles and other places in the United States that are swamped by illegal immigrants. Why, why can't we just call out the National Guard and have these people taken away? Why is it that only Martha's Vineyard gets this privilege? Like serving them food or something. But again, I saw this one clip where Tucker Carlson was accusing them. Why are you giving them just, you know, kind of like Mexican food or hamburgers or whatever they gave them, some basic thing? Okay, let's uh, check in with Tucker. Last time we told you about hospitals all over the country that are sexually mutilating children for profit. There's no other way to put it. That's happening. We quoted a passage from the transgender care guidelines at the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF. Those guidelines read, quote, genital surgery is being performed on a case-by-case basis more frequently in minors. In the absence of solid evidence, providers often must rely on the expert opinions of innovators and thought leaders in the field. Now, that's the kind of thing that, I don't know, marketing majors say, not people of science. People of science don't rely on thought leaders and innovators. They rely on data and facts, science. So after our broadcast, UCSF, which was apparently embarrassed for good reason, removed the link to their transgender care guidelines. They didn't explain the change, but we know exactly why they did it. All over the country, children's hospitals are shredding the evidence that they are mutilating minors for profit, which they are definitely doing. At Akron Children's Hospital in Ohio, for example, the hospital boasted about offering pubertal suppression and gender-affirming hormones to adolescents. In other words, sterilizing kids before they hit puberty. They took their whole website down this week after libs of TikTok exposed them. The hospital just put the website back up, but without the content that describes what we just did wonder why that is, because they're hiding what they're doing. And by the way, no hospital should ever hide what it's doing. That is by definition scary. A hospital should always be proud of the treatment it provides. And if it's not proud of it, why is it doing it? Oh, for profit. Golisano Children's Hospital at the University of Rochester has also been busy scrubbing content, according to a report from Libby Emmons at the Post Millennial. Emmons reports that Golisano Children's Hospital offers gender transition services to eight-year-olds. The hospital has now removed their promotional video for those services from YouTube. But we have the video. Here it is. We're here and we have a lot available. And if folks are at the very beginning of this process, if they're just starting to think about gender, if you have an eight-year-old who's sort of beginning to express these, give us a call. Again, if you're hiding what you're doing in a hospital, you are by definition doing something wrong. And the board of that hospital should step in and stop you from doing it immediately. Boston Children's Hospital has also taken down its YouTube videos after it was reported the hospital performs hysterectomies and castration on children. Vanderbilt Health, as we told you extensively last night, has taken its entire transgender health website offline following reporting by Matt Walsh. The website is still down today. Walsh's reporting, which we covered yesterday, includes videos of Vanderbilt physicians boasting about all the money they make from castrating children. The hospital also threatened to fire any doctor who might have a moral objection to this. So Tennessee's governor, Bill. Okay, we'll get back to Tucker Carlson in a minute. Let's uh, let's say hello to Duvid. Duvid, what's on your mind this evening? What's going on, man? Hey, Brooke Hashem. 
So Thank God. anything on your mind this evening? Or you want me to start with a topic? Um, yeah, I guess we go with the immigration because, uh, you know, Charles Moskowitz came back and uh, had a little run in with, uh, you know, God forbid, this historical re revisionist uh, who's running for uh, governor of Massachusetts and uh, through E. Michael Jones, where he had, had a conversation about uh, about the Holocaust, God forbid. And uh, this man, uh, Rizzolo, Rizzolo, was watching it, and he's a revisionist and has his channel and streaming partners with this woman who used to be a Trump supporter who's running for governor of Massachusetts, challenged him to a debate, which Charles accepted, and it didn't work out that well. And so you were talking about that today in the PBS docu documentary in immigration. So I, I was just expressing some of the thoughts you were saying to Charles about immigration and you know, the nature of the U.S. and uh, the Holocaust. And, and I watched today a, a recent uh, special from the Holocaust Museum that was going over polling. And I, I was trying to explain to Charles polling, but he likes to talk like Americans, you know, this is how Americans feel. And then, like, <laughs> pardon me, uh, we're like, well, I'm not really sure of the polling, but, the, you know, the Holocaust Museum, uh, you know, polling from the 40s seemed pretty clear that America doesn't really like immigrants. So Charles was claiming that it was the elites who didn't want to bring over Jewish immigrants, but the masses uh, wanted immigration. And I, I think the evidence was the opposite, that America didn't want immigrants and was the elites who uh, wanted immigrants. And then the level of uh, immigrants that were accepted during the Holocaust, the number um, who caused that. And, uh, you know, I think the polling is pretty clear that, uh, you know, Americans are compassionate, uh, but uh, but generally it doesn't matter if people are being killed or whatever the situation, don't really want them coming here to America. Um, but the elites, in some case, have pressure and force to uh, cause immigration to come through anyways. And I think that's what we're seeing here, uh, you know, in America, for whatever reason, uh, the, the, there's a push to allow immigration. Um, even among the Democratic Party, it's unclear if there's that much broad support for it. And, uh, you know, get, so, I mean, God forbid, good coverage, good analysis on, uh, you know, Richard Spencer and, and the various things. And for, uh, you know, God forbid you even converted me. I'm still kind of neutral. I, I try to be neutral on the issue. But uh, you even got me skeptical of immigration, where I tend to agree with you. I think America should do a complete moratorium, period on immigration like the only way to be fair would just be you know not not uh specific people or economic um but to completely limit all immigration except for you know a handful of necessary cases right it's it's a little bit like your own home i mean you could have a big empty home and you'd feel better if you brought some good people into the home with whom you felt comfortable and uh, friends or extended family, all right, you'd be better off bringing people into your home if you had a big empty home and you liked and respected and could trust the people you brought into your home. But you wouldn't just allow any random stranger to take up residence in, in your home. And so I think the same sort of principles apply to a country. And thinking of uh, Charles Moskowitz, I, I assume he's a Zionist, 
would he be down with allowing you know widespread non-Jewish illegal immigration into the Jewish state? I, I don't think many Zionists would be enthused about that. No, I mean, God forbid he, uh, you know, basically somehow manages the cognitive dissonance to promote a whole bunch of inconsistent things and basically moralizes where he has like a good, bad. And like, in this case, it's good and it's morally right. In this case, it's different for, you know, different moral reasons. And, and uh, you know, that's, I mean, we've said this many times now that, uh, you're bringing morality into political debates, lowers the IQ content by at least 10 IQ points. Uh, but that's generally how people will uh, get away with inconsistencies by, uh, you know, your claims of uh, doing the morally right thing. And in this case, it's morally right. In that case, it's not. And you know, we talked about it quite a bit uh, the last few weeks, my experience in New York. And uh, I took people, you know, off the street uh, into my apartment for a few years, uh, you know, even homeless people, uh, poor people, runaways, uh, you know, prostitutes, uh, transsexuals, uh, you know, various people, you know, even some wealthy people, some people just uh, temporarily needed a place, but most of them were in a bad situation. Um, yeah, I'm too old. I wouldn't do that now. And certainly it, it wouldn't be my, you know, like a refugee. I wouldn't take someone into my house because like they were fleeing danger uh, you know, because it would put me in danger, you know, like God forbid, maybe in New York when I was younger and in a different situations, more wild, you know, would have thinking and like, God forbid, uh, uh, my roommate was a fugitive from the law for a period of time, you know, for, for drug related crimes. Um, you know, so if you're a criminal, um, and you think the system is rigged and you're harboring fugitives from the law, uh, you know, that was just drug, uh, drug charges. Uh, but, uh, you know, also if it was immigration or that case, but uh, I don't think it would matter. Like you wouldn't want to take someone to your house just because they're being unfairly persecuted. Uh, you know, because because uh, you matter too, right? You, you matter too. You don't just uh, throw away your own rights and responsibilities and, and privileges to to help someone else. I mean, you're also a child of God. You also have you know value, and, and you don't just throw away your own well being and if you were married with young children, right? Imagine you're a normal Orthodox Jew, you're married, you've got four young kids at home. Would would that affect the type of people that you brought into your home? Yeah, I mean, no one does that. They, I mean, so Orthodox Jews who do it have, you know, safe places that, that uh, you know, they. I, I was taken into yeshivas or dormitories in a few situations where I needed a place to stay. And yeah, I'm relatively a pretty safe person. They could talk to me, tell, you know, see, I took semi high birth or could give an intelligible explanation for why I'm in the situation um, I'm in. Uh, but, you know, even in Jerusalem or, or Brooklyn, where they do have uh, these type places, usually they're packed with, uh, you know, crazy people and you wouldn't want to be there. You'd have to be in a really desperate situation. You know, if you're like a battered wo a woman or, uh, you know, some, crazy situation you get uh, in a fight with your parents and you know kicked out and, and when i was in borough park i had a lot of people that i temporarily let stay with me who were haredim who just got in a dispute with their parents and a lot of times it was over something where you know you probably would have sided with the kid like related to education you know, maybe it was uh you're shaving or 
not wearing the Hasidic clothing or, or library books. And their parents just didn't know what to do with them and kicked them out of the house. And, uh, and somehow they ended up uh, you know, begging me to let, me cr- let them crash by my place for a few days. And that place, okay, they were reasonably safe, secure people. I mean, they were adult kids, not uh, under 18. But, uh, you know, they were safe and secure. I didn't think they were going to steal or cause damage. And, but and if you had they- young children, if you had a wife and young kids, you would be even more careful about who you allowed to crash at your place. Yeah, so the, the Orthodox Jews who have that have places. They don't usually take them into their house. Or like in Brooklyn, you might have basement apartments. I had a basement apartment, and, you know, there's a separate lock and key. So if you let someone stay in your basement, they don't even have access to uh, the rest of your house. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, there's a safe distance. So it's recognized, like, yeah, there's going to be homelessness. There's going to be, you know, people from Israel. There's going to be drug users. There's even going to be people in and out of prison. And you don't want them on the streets. You want to form a rehabilitation. So you have to create special places. And then there'll be levels where you have people that are dangerous. And, uh, you know, so you put the dangerous people together or the people who are less dangerous or, you know, saying like if it's, uh, you know, like the Jewish Federation here in Metro Detroit sponsors like safe houses for battered wives or something like that. So, I mean, you're not going to put them together uh, with the, uh, homeless people so it has to be thought out and uh you, you can't just uh you, know, you can't ju- you can't just take these people into your house uh, but it is certainly a big mitzvah and uh you know so if you're a large synagogue or community uh you especially the jewish community like homelessness is basically not a thing uh, because they have it uh, you know figured out to a way where they could uh you at least uh put these people in safe places uh away from the danger of being around uh kids or, or, you know, the community too close. And and think about the privileges of belonging to an Orthodox synagogue. So it's not uncommon if you belong to an Orthodox synagogue that uh, most members of the synagogue will go over to somebody's home. And the, the close-knit community of life within an Orthodox synagogue is that you've got a safe space. Like, I grew up a Seventh-day Adventist. Everyone I knew was a Seventh-day Adventist. There were certain universally held practices and beliefs and outlooks on life that everyone I knew held. And so that was a safe place to to grow up. And when I step inside an Orthodox synagogue, again, it's a, a safe place. And I'm thinking about that rabbi, reform rabbi in Texas who allowed some stranger to come in because he felt sorry for the stranger. And then the stranger ends up holding him and other congregants at gunpoint f- for hours. So in increasingly dangerous times, you have to be increasingly selective about who you allow into your synagogue, and the same sort of principles apply to homes, communities, and, and countries. Yeah, and we even, ta- I mean, I, I, on Charles Moskowitz, I talked about that, where, you know, that, that case in Texas, the guy, the rabbi even said he didn't give a story that added up, like, who are you and where are you from? So, I mean, it, you know, it, yeah, I've done, you, you know, some help of level, we talked about this with you know, uh, standing at the door for my local synagogue and screening people and, you know, just the basic question, like, who are you? Where are you from? Why are you here? And the rabbi in that case said that uh, he he couldn't even answer that question straight. And, you know, that, that case was un, unfortunate. Uh, you know, in my area, like, you know, the local young Israel or, or most Orthodox synagogues will invite people to their house. Like, if it's a Shalom Zucker, like the Friday night uh, 
before a, a bris or um, certain events, usually the synagogue has a bulletin and it includes the address and everyone in the synagogue is invited. But I live in upper middle class suburb. There, there, there are really no poor people or de- degenerates who live in the neighborhood because it's divided socioeconomically. In Brooklyn, that's not the case. There's homeless and crazy people in basically every synagogue. And you really can't make a public event um, with without inviting those people. And we, we, we've debated this in the past about the, you know, the Jewish religious context of turning away beggars. But, uh, you know, I, I assume L.A. is not as bad as New York, but I assume there's quite a few poor people and crazy people. And it's probably pretty likely that, uh, you know, if you make an event in the synagogue, you invite everybody and uh, there's going to be a few crazy people showing up, but there's going to be a few people at the synagogue. And I was one of the people who, you know, like I was a guy and I, I was the people who dealt with that. I was the person who had to keep the eye on those people. And like, if the crazy person goes crazy, like I was the one who was expected to, uh, you know, deal with it. And, uh, you know, there were some fights or people had to be uh, bounced out or dealt with or even uh, police coming occasionally. Um, you know, I assume in L.A. you're across the board where probably some of the synagogues you go to, they could put the, you know, they're in a nice neighborhood. There are no crazy people there and they could invite everybody and just put the address on the bulletin board. Uh, but there's probably other places where it's known there's going to be crazy people and there's going to have to, uh, I would say Jewish crazy people, not like uh, terrorist or anti-Semitic threats, but they're saying normal uh, Jewish crazy people that just uh, pop into synagogue for free food and charity that, uh, you know, it's part of being a community, especially a community like the Orthodox community that, uh, you know, has like a nobody that gets left behind uh, where, where there's usually spe- specific people in the community that are designated to help out the degenerates, the cra- the Jewish crazies, the people who are perpetually uh, on charity. And if you're at a big event in a synagogue, uh, you know, like if Luke Ford got engaged, uh, you know, to a wealthy, you know, multimillionaire, a beautiful woman, and thousands of people came, presumably there would be tens of crazy people that would show up just for the free food. And, uh, you know, hopefully you would well, have a few in, friends. In L.A., would... you don't get, you wouldn't get in, uh, in most uh, Orthodox synagogues, most of the major synagogues in L.A. if you were a crazy person, unless they knew well, you. Well, a Jewish crazy, I'm not talking, I'm talking a Jewish crazy person. Yeah, I'm like saying a that a Jewish pastor. crazy person is not going to get in. Someone who is demonstrably acting crazy is not getting in, and almost all, all, no, definitely all the major synagogues have armed guards outside, and then they are assisted by members of the community. They make a lot of decisions about who gets in and who doesn't get in. So there's in Los Angeles, in the major synagogues, there's nowhere near the the kind of free access that you're you're describing. Uh, when when a Jew acts crazy, he he doesn't just get banned from one synagogue. The the word goes out around all the synagogues, and if he's you know behaving in an antisocial crazy manner, he he'll get banned from countless synagogues. So the major synagogues have increasingly strict standards for for who gets in and any misbehavior they'll they'll throw you out. So it's 
it's a much harsher situation with regard to crazy antisocial people, whether they're Jewish or not Jewish in LA than what you describe. And I think well, the, the situation in Brooklyn, beggars, let me finish my point. The situation place. in Brooklyn has changed too, because you're talking about 10, 20, 30 years ago. So all synagogues in the United States have become much more restrictive, have employed much more armed guards out front, are much more careful about who they allow in now than the times that you're talking about, Fass. Yeah, I mean, because I use the word crazy, so there's different levels. So, I mean, God forbid, you know, like I was a Shamish, you know, assistant at uh, Shomer Shabbos that was the synagogue of last resort that was a soup kitchen and even historically at time let homeless uh, people uh, sleep there. And in Brooklyn, you have a much poorer community, a much more Hasidic community, and you have Hasidim, you know, like people pay us in yarmulkes that are crazy and uh and they basically hang out in synagogues all day so yeah i mean there's a lot of synagogues that uh keep them out but uh you know a lot of hasidic synagogues especially holocaust survivors or people that uh you have a strong feel for not wanting anybody left behind make a point to allow those people to come and yeah, I mean, like crazy people who act oh, out. Okay, we, we've done this to death. We, we've done this about twenty times. So there are Jewish places that allow anyone to come. So let's uh, let's move on. We've we've gone over that many many times. Uh, human nature. Yeah, I was going to talk about just kiddish crashing. So I mean, there's a level of just a kiddish crasher that uh, that is not a crazy, but a kiddish crasher. And like I would assume that there's tens of people that would get past security to uh, crash your kiddish. No, no one gets past security unless we know who they are. I mean, no one, no one just crashes into any of the major synagogues in L.A. There's security. There's a protocol. If you're not a regular member, then you should probably call in advance or you need to have someone vouch for you or you get, uh, you get quite, quite an investigation before you're allowed in. No, the major synagogues in L.A., nobody is crashing in. Well, I guess you're the man who knows there. So, I mean, it could be in, in New York, it's changed like that. Also, uh, you know, you're right, it's been more than 10 years since I did that, but you would be the one who would know in L.A. Okay, let's uh, get back to the topic of human nature. It's one of the major distinctions between the two political orientations. People on the right tend towards a skeptical view of human nature. People on the left universally have an optimistic and positive view of human nature. You're not primarily a political person, so... I want to get into what is your personal view of human nature? Do you think people are basically good, basically bad? How do you see it? Generally, I see the the you, a, a Judeo understanding of like an inclination to bad uh, and and a good side where you have the human animal, and the human animal is basically evil that uh, you know sends messages of you know basically you know God forbid. Uh, murder, rape, steal, that, uh, you know, like, just on uh, restrained passion, the desire to uh, fulfill anything that the body desires. And then there's the rational um, functions of the soul that allow a person to overcome those base desires. And I think that's the basic Judeo concept. Uh, you know, you could talk about, like, the Hasidic works uh, or, or, like, a, a Freudian take that a lot of people say Freud's uh, ego id and superego is based on uh, um, the Judeo concept. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, basically the natural inclination of 
the the body is to evil and it has to be restrained and that's the purpose of uh, the mitzvahs and it's not just like evil people all people have these evil natural desires and uh, like the talmud says me and my my local rabbi used to repeat to each other uh, you know about the yetsahara the evil inclination it never takes a vacation it never uh, rests it never gets tired uh, every time you beat it it comes back stronger so i i would say theologically that's pretty straightforward uh, the jewish attitude towards uh, human nature it's naturally bad and has to be overcame right but i was asking you about your personal nature does does your personal view of human nature align with judaism's well yeah i mean god forbid because i i was I mean, not a horrible kid but I, w- I was kind of a bad kid so I, I could see and i had to work very hard to refine my character and even even to, you know now where i've been working at for decades where i basically am well behaved uh but i'll i've trained myself to watch my own mind and i could see that my desires are, are basically constantly evil uh on bridal if i just followed my desires i would be an evil person yeah and I, I certainly feel the, the same way. I have pretty much the same views on human nature as you do. And I know, for example, when I get sick, I often dial back on my spiritual religious practices. And then I notice my my evil inclination increasingly starting to get the better of me because I've got, I've got downtime because I'm sick. I'm not engaging in the purifying religious spiritual uplifting practices that I normally engage in. And so my... My nasty, addictive, exploitive, using tendencies increasingly come come to the fore. So I can't afford to take much time off from the, the spiritual and religious practices that keep me morally centered. I want to move on to the topic of Christian nationalism. So it's not something we heard much about uh, even a year ago. Have you paid any attention to this rising movement of Christian nationalism? Yeah, because I've been following Nicholas Fuentes because uh, you know, politically provoked, who I haven't worked together with, uh, is now on uh, Cozy TV. So a lot of the people that that I was streaming and talking with um, on Cozy T on uh, politically provoked are now part of uh, Nicholas Fuentes, and and then also the Crucible. Um, so I, I've been following a little bit that sector of uh, the internet, and you know I've mentioned. Uh, in your chat or to you a few times that uh, you know, ironically Nicholas Fuentes is like the leader of the alt-right moving into elections and uh, you know, Richard Spencer is now you know liberal or wherever on the on the sidelines and it's probably due to the power of uh, Christianity that you know I mean Nicholas Fuentes is I mean you 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 covered him on the on the alt-right voice and he has a powerful level of presentation he's probably pretty smart but I mean, he's no Richard Spencer. Richard Spencer almost had a PhD. He could be a college professor. He's read hundreds of books. He knows, uh, you, you know, he's an elite, as where Nicholas Fuentes is a college dropout, uh, doesn't really have experience in uh, elite circles. Uh, but I, I would guess that a large part of how he rose to kind of be like the leader of the new alt-right or alt-light, if you want to call it, is is because of Christianity. And how scary is Christian nationalism to you? Well, I'm, I'm not a, a scary type. I, 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 you know, I have these arguments with Charles regularly because, uh, 
you know, he likes to say comments like nobody believes, and I'm like, nah, I'm pretty sure that like like 20% of Americans believe, uh, and you know, especially because he talks to E. Michael Jones regularly in questions of, uh, you know, God forbid, like Christian tenets of, uh, you know, are are we as Jews responsible for the uh, death of Jesus or beliefs about the Holocaust and various things, and Charles will kind of like preach what Christians believe, and I'm kind of like, I don't think I think. Uh, you know, a lot of Christians still believe that stuff, um, but uh, yeah, I, I I don't see it as a a direct threat because I'm in a blue area. So uh, you know, there, there's Christianity is extremely important to African Americans, uh, but I would say the Christianity among African Americans is uh, not uh, the same type of threatening in the way of uh, white Christian nationalism, because white Christian nationalism would probably exclude me. As where you know the black uh, the black church, which uh, dominates the Democratic Party, uh, you know generally you know me as an Orthodox Jew, I'm an ally uh, with them. So on the whole, U.S. you know, God forbid, I, I've been saying for a few years now, like uh, Rodney, uh, that unfortunately I think the U.S. is going to break up, and uh, Christian nationalism will play a big part in that. Uh, but uh, in the area I'm in, I'm on the blue side, the uh, black side of uh, the divide. So I was reading an article in the Washington Post today, the headline, Inside the Civil Rights Campaign to Get Big Tech to Fight the Big Lie. For months, civil rights groups have unsuccessfully pleaded with big tech companies to bolster their election policies. The mainstream media allows lies about so many things. It's just kind of funny. Who who decides uh, what is the the big lie? I I could name a lot of... uh, of big lies, not just about uh, the 2020 election. I could name a lot of big lies that are far more important than questioning the integrity of the 2020 election. So, for example, one one big lie that the mainstream media is pushing, that if different groups have different life results, then that must be the result essentially of of white racism, as opposed to different groups having different gifts. So looking at this Washington Post story, coalition of five dozen civil rights organizations is blasting Silicon Valley's biggest social media companies for not taking more aggressive measures to counter election misinformation on their platforms in the months leading up to November's midterm elections. And it just just seems so so bizarre that uh, anyone questioning the integrity of the election is somehow a major threat to our our country and our election. So here's one one quote from the civil rights group. The past few election cycles have been rife with disinformation and targeted disinformation campaigns. We continue to see massive amounts of disinformation getting through the cracks. Well, when I read the newspaper, I see a ton of disinformation, but it's not the disinformation they're talking about. Disinformation seems to me is entirely in the in the eye of the beholder. I mean, I made some notes on what I see are the major forms of disinformation going through the, the media. I mean, the, the mainstream media pushed the baseless lie that it was police racism that's one of the biggest issues in our country. And police racism is not the major cause of police having negative interactions with young black men who are committing disproportionate rates of crime. Uh, the mainstream media pushed baseless claims that Russia hacked the 2016 election and that Russia got Donald Trump elected in, in 2016. Uh, other 
baseless claims that the mainstream media pushes that any group disparity in life results is the result of uh, white racism. And I mean, the, the civil rights group said uh, they cited a tweet by Arizona gubernatorial candidate Kerry Lake who asked her followers if they'd be willing to monitor the polls for cases of voter fraud. So even monitoring the polls for, for cases of voter fraud, somehow that is something that should be suppressed. I mean, the, the Washington Post has this big series this week on how blacks are being discriminated against in coaching in the NFL when black coaches have on average a below average winning record. Uh, there's consistent denial of group differences in the mainstream media. There's a, an eagerness to highlight white criminals and a reluctance to point out uh, black criminals. The mainstream media news is almost always the reports of bureaucracies. Bureaucracies have certain interests that are not identical to the interests of regular people. Why should the news simply be the largely the regurgitation of what, you know, this attorney general says or this bureaucracy has said? That's that's why the news just doesn't bear much resemblance to our real lives. And the mainstream media is filled with all these baseless claims about fake moral categories such as racism, sexism, ageism, bigotry, prejudice, homophobia, Islamophobia, that these are the real and terrible things. If we're in a Christian country, they could just as easily say denial of Christ, denial of the nuclear family, denial of heterosexual marriage are the worst things. So the mainstream media wants enforcement of certain laws, such as anti-discrimination laws, but not enforcement of other laws, such as protecting our borders, going after illegal aliens, or any laws that disproportionately violate sacred groups, such as blacks. And also the mainstream media never talks about race hoaxes. It is very happy to highlight when some idiot white person has done something wrong, but they don't talk about all the numerous cases where you've had people of color conducting hoaxes trying to say that uh, white people have uh, hurt them when it just turned out to be a hoax. So I said a lot there, David, anything you wanted to react to? Yeah, my, I agree largely with your assessment. Uh, you may be trying to look at a bigger picture and tie it back in with uh, what we've been talking about with the Ronnie Goldman book and conservative phobia is there's the difference between the culture war and politics and elections. So, you know, the culture war is being waged and basically everyone is a part of it. Most people don't really follow politics, don't care that much about elections. Voter turnout is very low. And, uh, you know, even the people who uh, will end up voting in the election generally only get into it uh, close to the election and don't get into it uh, that deeply as opposed to the cultural war aspect. Um, much more people broad across society care about that. And so from the media, you know, like you know, like the chess terminology, God forbid the chess cheating scandal has been in the news recently, but uh, there's strategy and tactics. And in terms of winning elections, the these people are largely just looking at what's the best strategy and tactics to go about winning elections. And with the, you know, like your red and blue state for local elections, there's, it's usually, uh, you know, demographically divided. So I say like, I'm in a black area, it's going to be a Democrat. Like Rashida Tlaib is going to be my Congresswoman at this point. You know, there's nothing that could stop it. She won the democratic primary, uh, there was, you know, force in the Jewish community to try to uh, rally behind African-American to uh, beat Tlaib. Uh, 
uh, but uh, you, you know that's on the ground in my area where the demographics are basically determinative of who's going to win. On the statewide ele elections, you need a coalition of various forces to win. And on the Democratic side, in most states, that means African-Americans and liberal whites. In order to win a statewide election, you need a reasonably broad-based turnout of African-Americans and, uh, and liberal whites. And so the media or, or the, the people who are doing the things you're talking about, that's really just strategy and tactics in order to win elections. Um, mostly in the case of uh, you know, the statewide elections, which is trying to convince blacks to vote, and uh, which you know things like voter registration or uh, you know scare tactics, and also power. That uh, you know what what uh, what is convincing? What do blacks want? What is convincing to them to vote? And and basically, it's more of them in positions of power. So even if your claims are logically right. You're saying that the, the Democratic base of blacks, in order for them to come out in state elections and uh, have a high turnout, um, the Democratic Party needs to put more black people in positions of power. I mentioned to you, I, I sent a link, I, I forget exactly what it was related to, that woman from The View, uh, not Whoopi Goldberg, but the African-American lawyer who uh, on The Great Replacement, she said that she originally, when they mentioned The Great Replacement, said that the great replacement was um, dark-skinned people replacing whites and Jews in positions of power. And then they immediately corrected her and was like, no, that's not what it's about. You know, the great replacement's conspiracy against Jews. Uh, but uh, to some extent, she was right that the great replacement um, is also about, you know, Jews being replaced by blacks because, uh, you know, in order for blacks to be part of the coalition, and uh, turn out for elections. You have to put black people in positions of power, and that largely means democratic positions and the white people that are being replaced in order to allow Democrats to have, uh, you know, uh, blacks to have power in the Democratic Party, are a lot of times uh, Jews. So I'm not sure if you find that interesting just to divide the culture wars to the strategy and tactics of winning elections. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're obviously right there. I just had uh, an additional topic I, I wanted to bounce off you. How comfortable are you dealing with female emotions? Like, how do you like dealing with a highly emotional woman? I'm not that emotional. So, like, very rarely do I do that. And uh, I would probably, like, avoid it or just, uh, you know, recommend them, you know, getting support from another female. I could try to be, like, minimally compassionate and hope they feel better, but it would probably be like um, minimal where I'd just be like, oh, I'm sorry that, you know, you know, God forbid, I'm sorry that happened to you. I hope uh, everything works out. And if I did have to deal with it, it would be more more like rationalizing where it'd be like, well, your motion's not going to help you. Uh, let's find, uh, you know, out using logic and rationality, the source of the problem and talk it through it. And I would try to be sensitive and compassionate that if that wasn't the case, but it'd be more like referring to them, you know, like, uh, you know, why don't you talk to your friend that understands your emotion? And when you're you're done with your emotions, you could talk to me about uh, logic. And maybe that's, you know, Church of Entropy might be a female mirror of me, the, you know, uh, not very emotional. Now, 
what if what if a guy's having trouble dealing with intense female emotions do you think it is morally jewishly okay for him to say i'm sorry i've got asperger's i just don't know how to deal with this sort of stuff even if it's not true but just as a way to you know try to get out of these awkward situations yeah but it's a white lie it, it's possibly you could get uh, i mean generally that uh you you don't want falsehood to leave your um mouth and it's bad in certain circumstances so if you train yourself in a method like uh like it happens regularly if you're in a situation where where you're constantly having to deal with you know if it's emotional females and you have a strategy where you tell this lie um but it gets you out of the situation um you know, as opposed to like a one time thing um possibly there's a better way to uh to do it where where you could come up with a way without lying cuz uh like like i said it's not necessarily like an avera of sin. Some people would say it's a sin. Just lying, having falseness, leaving your mouth is sinful. And so it could be a situation where there's, you know, the expression in Hebrew is like mitzvah bolvera, where a good deed could uh, overweigh the committing of a sin. Uh, but you don't want to have to sin in order to do uh, the good deed. So I'd say long term, it's not good to have a strategy that necessitates uh, you lying. Okay, I think I'm going to uh, move on, but if you have a final topic or any any final words, I'll throw it over to you. No, not not much. You know, say so elections are coming, so uh, you know, you'll keep it up. There's a lot of important uh, issues, you know, the UN and, and, and uh, Russia, and, uh, you know, I mean, you're not like a news channel that's uh, covering all the news, but... Uh, I think these conversations, like, like you say, that uh, most people don't really follow politics, and when they do, it's related to elections. So as elections get closer, uh, you know, more people will be thinking uh, about these issues. So you know, like your streaming will be, uh, you know, more of a service, and you know, the culture wars. Uh, but you, know, you know, certainly just, yeah, I've been saying this for a while. Self improvement works better as a group, and uh, having people where you could discuss. You even say strategy and tactics of self-improvement is an important also in being able to, uh, uh, you know, just share and bounce ideas off. So appreciate it. Have a great night. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, David. Good to talk to you and good to see you. Take care. Bye-bye.